Video's down, so we're starting anyway. It's gonna be good. Just imagine some heroes are here to save us. Nickelback's playing, Spider-Man's popping out. Here we are. Boom. Hey, uh, Tony, could you help me out real quick for a second? Um, it would be really helpful for my illustration if this table sat six inches off the ground for about an hour. Could you just hold it? Perfect. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Hey, so this morning, I'm excited. Uh, how many of you guys are, like, fans of, like, heroes? Like, you love heroes. How many of you guys, this is more my generation, I think. How many of you guys are, like, villain fans? Like, you like a good, like a good villain? I'm more of an anti-hero my, guy myself. In fact, my mom got a little uh, worried when I was a kid because she would, like, show me Star Wars. She was like, isn't Luke Skywalker the best hero? I was like, Mom, Han Solo. I mean, come on. And then we'd watch Pirates of the Caribbean, and she's like, Will's such a tender heart. I'm like, Jack Sparrow. Like, where, where, get your head in the game, Mom. She, like, totally messed with me. But today, uh, today I want to continue our hero series talking about an anti-hero. His name was Ehud. And he, we kind of didn't plan this, but I'm going to give Pastor Brent credit anyways because he's just that nice of a guy. Um, this story of Ehud actually takes place chronologically at how we've been going. Moses happened. Then Joshua and Caleb happened. They took over the promised land. Ehud's, like, just a few years after that, and he's... Uh, where the people are in the promised land, but things aren't going as good as they were hoping to go. We're going to be in the book of Judges. And something interesting about the book of Judges, how many of you guys have ever read through the book of Judges? It's a different kind of book. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, it's, it's not one that you uh, read in front of small children. You, you hide it and you read it when your grandma's not looking. It's really good. But um, it shouldn't be even called Judges, I feel like. It should be called, like, Chiefs or Warlords because it's basically just a bunch of histories of barbaric battles that take place. Game of Thrones, you know, is kind of down here. Book of Judges, it's crazy, man. It's crazy, the stuff that it gets into. But as I was reading into it, I found something interesting. I was thinking through, and I've never actually been present when a speaker has ever preached through the Book of Judges or even shared uh, a sermon out of the Book of Judges. I think it's because it's so dark. Like, it's something, darkness, despair, depravity, those are kind of things that we like to avoid, right? Like, those aren't things we like to give a lot of our time but I'm thankful for this book because it shows how God is still at work and God is still present even in the darkest, most desperate times. Amen? Like many of us can think of some of the dark points in, in our timeline that we don't want other people to see that we're like, oh, this, this isn't something I'm going to share during a testimony night. But God was there. And he walked you through even in that brokenness. So we're going to be in there. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to jump into the book of Judges chapter 3. If you don't have your physical Bible, we have it on the screen. If you scan the Sunday links, it'll be there. But if you are there, say there. There's three of us. That's enough. We got this. Starting in verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Amorites and Amalekites as allies. And then he went out and defended, uh, defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute, money to King Eglon of Moab. So Ehud, became a, so Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. I love that. It's like my favorite verse of the Bible. He's very fat. I always tell my wife, she's like, well, how long are you going to go to the gym? I was like, until when I get pulled over by a cop, they, when they go to describe me, they're like a very muscular man. I'm like, all right, cool. We got this. 
Uh, continuing in verse 18, after delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. But when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. He came to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. So the king commanded his servants, be quiet, and he sent them all out of the room. Ehud walked over to Eglon, and he said, sitting alone in a cool upstairs room, uh, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. As King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out his dagger strapped to his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. That's just crazy right there. It's going to get even crazier here in a second. Ehud did not pull out the dagger, and the king's bowels emptied. It's getting kind of a smelly situation going on. Then he had closed and locked the door of the room and escaped down the latrine. Does everyone here know what a latrine is? You're never going to look at porta potties the same way. They are a gift from God to save you. Not seriously. Don't jump. Down, don't jump down the porta potties. That'd be bad. Uh, verse 24. After he had was gone, the king's servants returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. They thought they might be using. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room. So they waited. But when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. And when they opened the doors, they found their master dead on the floor. While the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped past the stone idols on his way to Syria, where he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim. Ehud sounded a call to arms. Then he led a band of Israelites down from the hills. Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him, and the Israelites took control of their shallow crossing of the Jordan, uh, took control of the shallow crossing of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. They attacked the Moabites and killed about 10,000 of their strongest and most able-bodied warriors. Not one of them escaped, so Moab was conquered by Israel that day. And there was peace in the land for 80 years. Let's pray real quick. God, right now, I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you that um, the Christian life, although the best life, isn't always the safest, isn't always the easiest. But God, that you walk in our midst, even during hard, difficult, challenging times. I pray as we hear... And read the story about a man that lacked character, but you still used him, God, that we'd be inspired to have character. God, that as he had wrong motivations, that we'd have right motivations. That as we hear from you, we just want to be more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. So I mentioned my love of anti-heroes. In fact, my all-time favorite anti-hero, in case you haven't watched my Instagram, is Captain Jack Sparrow. Rocking the pirate stuff, man. I love him. He... It's my all-time favorite. And like I said, my mom got a little concerned because, uh, for those of you that don't know, I was born with a club foot, so it means I wasn't always the strongest or the fastest, so sometimes I had to be the smartest. And the problem for me is, even through school, I'm, I'm a slow learner. So I was pretty sarcastic, I was pretty witty, and that doesn't always make you everybody's favorite person. And so I had to, to learn to be, a little, to be a little clever to get out of situations, and this continued. In high school, I did MMA. I had a lot of fun, but I never really talked about it. And I uh, went to Bible college. And the thing about Bible college is it was a trippy ride. My first year when I entered Bible college, I was 180 pounds, pretty lean. I, I had something of a six-pack. By year two, I was 300 pounds of pure burrito and Netflix, man. It was, it was quite the experience. It was quite the ride. And uh, halfway through my second year, I began to think this one girl was very cute. Uh, my wife's cuter, so don't worry. But I began to think she was cute. And me and my roommate at the time who was not so little. He was actually working on bodybuilding. He'd go to the gym like six days a week. He looked a lot like Tony, man. It was a little scary. Um, he liked her as well. So we both invited her over to the house. We're hanging out. And towards the end of the night, she's like, hey, um, you know, we're in Albany. It's, it's like LA. It's pretty dangerous. So I need someone to walk me out to my car. And we're both sitting there like, 
Should we rock, paper, scissors? What should we do? And I'm like, maybe we should wrestle for it. And he is excited because he's like, oh, man, I got this. He's like, yeah, that's a great idea, Ty. And she's like, okay, you guys wrestle, and whoever makes me feel safer, I'll take. And I was like, okay. And he just pounds me to the ground. He starts bear hugging me. But here's the thing. Like, I, I don't mind a bear hug. So he's just squeezing me. He's really strong, and I'm just sitting there like, oh, man, the pain, the agony. I wish my mom would hug me this tight. Like, it's good. Um, and eventually he's squeezing so much that he begins to get tired. And right when he gets tired, I'm like, man, I'm not here to look strong. I'm not here to look impressive. I'm here to win. So I just take my two fingers and put it right here in his throat and push up as hard as I can. And as soon as he's gagging and and asking for air, I just put him in a headlock and I hold him down and I'm like, call me winner. And I win. And she looks and she's like, although I still don't know if I feel safest with Ty, deal's a deal. And I was like, hey, man, you were here to look good. I was here to win. Those are two different things. See, Ehud was not there with the proper motivations. The thing about anti-heroes is they're not, they may do heroic things, but they're not doing it because they're a hero. They're doing it out of their own motivations. And so Ehud is another one of these guys. When we, when we study and we hear about Moses or Joshua or Caleb or any of these guys, they have good character. They're people that want to make a difference in the kingdom of God. They want to be protecting God's people. Ehud is not one of those guys. He's in it for him. But God uses him in the midst of that. The first thing we see, point number one, is we are a people in need of a savior. How many of you guys look around the world today and you see that? You see the world in all this array and you're like, man, we need a savior. We need some help. There's something inside of us as humanity that we look and we say, we need a savior. It's why we like epic blockbusters where the hero comes in and saves the day. It's why like Lord of the Rings is still one of the greatest movies of all time. Because we love a savior. And Israel needs one because Israel is deep in sin. At this point in the story, like I said, Caleb had just happened like less than 100 years ago. And so they're in the promised land, the land that they had been waiting for for hundreds of years. But here's the problem. They didn't finish the conquest that God had given them. And so all of their enemies are not just around them anymore, but they're not becoming as much enemies as homies now. They're inviting them into their lives. The scripture even says that they begin to intermarry. So it's not just like we put up with them, but it's like, let's be just like them. And so the people that God had established to, to show his covenant, to show, to show his glory, are becoming just like everybody else. And this frustrates God. And so God says that he is so tired of it. In verse 12 it says, Once again, the Israel did evil in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. God was tired of seeing their sin. And so it says that he handed them over. He pulled back his blessing. He helped the enemy to conquer them. See, and here's the dangerous thing. When we think of sin and we think of the story, it's like we get tired of it. Yeah, I get it. God blessed them. Then they sinned. Then God saves them. Then, God, then they, and they mess it up. But here's the thing. If we begin to become callous to that, we get in some danger. Because sin is a very, very serious thing. In fact, we see in the story that right off the bat, sin tells us a couple of things. Number one, that sin is boring. Why is it boring? Because it's same old, same old. People walk in, and it's so funny to me, they walk in and they act like they have this original idea. Hey, here's an original thought. Let's not do what God asks. Let's do what we want instead. It's like, wow. Wow, man, I wish I'd heard that before. Sin is boring. Sin is nothing new. Sin continually happens over and over again. You think that it's going to lead somewhere you want to go, but then you follow it to your disaster. Second thing, sin is perverse. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says, yes, they knew God but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their mind became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Anyone know anyone like that? 
Don't name the names. It's okay. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. When you begin to continue to sin, it begins to change your perspective. Pastor Brent talked about that last week. Is where our mind is is where we're going to go. And when we begin to sin, it begins to change our perspective. It begins to change how we see the world. When we are foolish, we think we're wise. Where we are weak, we think we're strong. And that leads us into number three. Sin is an addiction. See, Israel may break free from sin from time to time in the Bible, but they sadly always return to it. It's like an, uh, it's like an addict with a substance, and sin is the master of drugs. It is the worst thing. It's why, like, I'm in a season in my life where a lot of times I walk people through going through stuff. They're, they're dealing with addictions. They're dealing with stuff. And the thing that I always struggle with is I never really like to do it if they're not a believer or don't become a believer. And here's why. Because they're event- eventually, inevitably, going to exchange one thing for another, and they're no better off. Struggle with anger, you go to anger management, you get under control, now you're prideful. I can control my anger. You, uh, you know, deal with obesity, you go to the gym, you eat right, now you're not obese, but now you're, you're looking at yourself in the mirror all the time, checking, checking out other people. If you begin to exchange sin for another sin, that's no better. You have to exchange sin for the glory of God, for, for, for true freedom. It's why I believe that John Calvin, a theologian, says this, the human heart is an idol factory. Like as soon as one idol is taken away, we just develop another. Is that not the story we've seen in humanity? It happens over and over again. See, the consequences of their sin is they become slaves to this king, Eglon. And in verse 12, this is so interesting. In verse 12, it says that God gave strength to Eglon, and that's what allowed him to conquer. And in verse 13, it says that Eglon gave himself strength by forming alliances. So often in our world, or even in our personal life, we begin to think of sin as two separate things, that either the consequences are natural, they just happen by, cons- by you know, the consequences of our actions, or they're supernatural and God's here to punish us. But a lot of times they're intertwined. And God uses natural consequences supernaturally to affect our lives. See, when we continue to sin, both people, and if nations continue to sin, they become vulnerable and begin to collapse. We've seen some of the greatest empires of the world. What, what a lot of times causes them to collapse, not another nation, but because they become weak from within. When we begin to do things, what causes us to stumble? Not usually some external force, but because we allow weakness from within. My youth pastor, this is a gross story, but we're sharing a gross story, so I'm just going to tell you anyways. It's going to be good. What are you going to do, fire me? Like, get out of here. Come on. Um, he, would, he would come up with this blender, and he would make like this beautiful smoothie, put fruit in it, all stuff, and he's like, who wants it? And we're like, yes, 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 we're drooling. Like, I want it. And then he would take just the smallest amount of dog poo and drop it in and blend it. He's like, now who, nah, who still wants it? Sadly, this is youth group, so some people still did. But the point is this, just a, li- just a little bit of sin, just a little bit of lack of conviction, just a little bit of compromise ruins the whole thing. Ruins the whole thing. You can't just walk through life thinking, well, I got 90% of things figured out and compromise on the 10 expected results. It's like Pastor Brent has shared before. If you're on a plane and you're going 1,000 miles and you're one degree off, you're not going to end anywhere near where you want to be. If your life is inconsistent with what you say you believe, even just a little bit, it's going to take you places you don't want to go. And so we see here that God uses this natural combined with his supernatural force, calamity, and his hope is that it humbles his people. So often in our life, we look at travesty, whether it be natural or or supernatural, and we think, what are we supposed to do with this? It's supposed to be a reminder to humble ourselves and draw closer to God. See, the world has paid a price for its rebellion, and the church 
has also paid a price for its failure to stay consistent and faithful to the word. And it's easy for us to say, yeah, yeah, the world, everyone out there, oh, yeah, yeah, the church has a collective, it's, it's got problems, and those are things are true. But can I tell you that each and every one of us are a part of that problem? We each bring sin to the table. See, the Israelites, much like many of us may think that because they have this special relationship with God, it gives them a license to do whatever they want, that they can sin and God will forgive them. Like, oh, sorry, God, I, I figured it'd be better to ask for forgiveness than permission. But here's the problem. A relationship with God, for us, just like for them, puts us under greater obligation to follow God's requirements. I have a tattoo on my knuckle here of an anchor. And one of the reasons why I had this tattooed here is because I take some of the scripture very seriously. And one of the, the things that Jesus shares in the Bible is that if a Christian leads another Christian astray, he says it's better for them to tie a giant rock around their neck and be thrown into the ocean. It's a pretty serious statement. Because sin is a super serious thing. So Israel is in this place where they've sinned. They're facing the consequences of the sin and they begin to cry out to God. It says that God raised up a man named Ehud. And again, this is interesting because when you look at the story of Moses or Joshua, or Caleb, or even the guy before him, Othniel, who is Caleb's nephew, you see ideal figures. You see people that if you were to see them walking around the church today, you'd be like, yeah, that, of course God's going to use that guy. Look at him. He's handsome. He's strong. He's smart. Like, you can see that God rests on him. He's well-connected. But Ehud isn't like that. Ehud isn't a noble knight. He's a rogue assassin. He's someone that tricks his way to the top. He's not someone that's going to come out and do the courageous and brave thing. He's somebody that's going to scheme to get what he wants. See, and although Ehud was chosen by God, it makes a big, it makes a big difference. It makes a big differential. It's, it says that he was chosen by God, but it never mentions that he was filled with the Spirit or empowered by God. See, God used him, but he didn't have the heart or the desire to serve God. God can use any one of us. God can use anything, any person, anything that he wants to use. But if you want to be partner with God, if you want to build something with God, if you want to be mentioned as a person of faith, you've got to be empowered by the Spirit. You can't just be used by God. You've got to be moldable, usable, humble before God. The next thing he has going against him is he's not from the tribe of Judah. See, Judah was the line of kings. They were the conquerors. They were the ones that when you were in war, you wanted Judah on your side. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, a tribe known to be weak, and a tribe that was actually directly responsible for this problem because they were told to, to push out the Moabites, and they didn't. So they're literally, he's from this tribe that's directly responsible for their suffering. And in this, Benjamin would have been considered something evil or foul. In fact, it would have been like when Nathaniel hears about Jesus and he says, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? It would have been like, Benjamin, can anything good come from Benjamin? It'd be like me saying, Portland. Anything good come from Portland? So Ehud has a lot of things going against him. And again, it mentions that he's left-handed. And this was interesting to me. I thought maybe they just had something against left-handers. But no, what this means is that either his right hand was disabled and immobile or it was cut off. And here's why that's important. As you see all through the Bible, what are they called? The strong right arm of God. They hold a sword in their right arm. Military might comes from the right arm. So the fact that he can't use it or it's gone shows that, that to them like he is no military leader. He is no warrior. He's not somebody that can be used in this way. 
See, Ehud to them was weak in every possible way. He'd be, he'd be someone that was physically crippled that we'd see go by and, and wish him the best, but think he's not going to be able to win this war. And it's not clear at this point whether God is working through him not or yet. All we see in the story so far is that Israel is at work and Ehud is at work. And Israel is getting to an even worse point because they've prayed to God, asking God to help them out. And God, and to their knowledge, God hasn't sent anyone or done anything to help them. See, they don't have a biblical point of view. They have a human point of view. And all they're seeing is what's in front of them, this darkness and despair. And they're not seeing what God can do at any point. And it's so easy for us in our mind to, to, to do the same thing. It's easy for us to categorize things. Well, all of this is what humans are doing, so that's them. And all of this must be what God's doing. And we don't often correlate the two. But can I tell you some of the greatest things that happen in the Bible happen because God uses the movements of humans? Think of the story of Joseph. He's sold into slavery by his brothers. By all means, an evil thing that if that happened to us, we would hate it. But God says that he uses that for the blessing of his family. Think of the story of even Jesus who's being crucified. If you're one of his disciples, you're thinking, man, the Romans are killing Jesus. There's nothing we can do. I guess they won. But what we see in Scripture is that God used Jesus' death to save all of humanity. See, God is not limited in this thing where it's him versus humans. God can work through whoever and however he wants. So in this situation, Israel is limited in their faith because they've been suffering for so long. They've been in sin so long that they think God has abandoned them. So they choose this guy, Ehud. They choose this guy, Ehud. And why would they choose Ehud? One, because they're not sending him as rescuer. They're sending him as submissive servant. They're sending him to bring offerings to this king in hopes that he'll stay in a good mood against them. Saying, please don't wipe us out. So they send Ehud, and they're sending him, saying, hey, you're cripple. You're not someone that can hold a sword, so uh, he's not going to find you threatening. Please take this offering to the king in hopes that he'll still like us and let us live. Ehud is a little different than the people, though. See, where they don't, where they see hopelessness, Ehud sees possibility. Like I said, he's a schemer. He's a schemer. Ehud sees this as an opportunity to go into the enemy territory where most of them couldn't cross. He sees this as an opportunity to do something to level up his status here on earth. He sees his handicap, something that people tell him that he can't be used because of it, not as something limiting, but as an asset. So he prepares himself to go up against this king in a way that I think most people then and probably even now wouldn't know what to do. He, it says that he fashions himself a knife. I have my knife right here. It says he fashions himself a little pocket knife that he can hide away and no one would find it because he has no red arm. He can't fight with a sword, so you're not worried about him. And he straps it underneath his clothes so that no one can see it. He's sneaking around with a little knife saying, I'm going to get you. He's not saying, I'm going to walk in saying, God's... God's got my back. We're going to do this. He's sneaking in as a spy and as an assassin saying, let's see what I can do for myself. So he makes this weapon that he can hide that no one will know to look for because he's a trickster and he's an expert at the art of concealment. That's what sets him apart is he's not a godly man. He's not a man of courage. He's a man of cowardice and he's kind of conniving. See, the story begins there to change though because it stops talking about Ehud and begins to talk about their enemy king Eglon. And like I talked about before, this is really interesting because this is one of the few times in the Bible where it stops and begins to describe this man, and he uses the word fat, overweight. And for us, we may think, oh, the Bible's trying to tell us that he's a slob, 
or that he's disgusting or that he needs help. Like he's obviously not somebody, but in their times, this was different. To be fat means that you are a man of extreme means. See, they didn't have access to food like we have access to food. They couldn't just hit up the grocery store. Like everything they had, they had to go get themselves. And so for him to be able to be, to be able to sit and not bring his own food and to have more than he could ever need was a big deal back then. So when they're saying that he's fat, it's saying that Israel should be really scared because he's driving them hard. He's taking a good majority of their food, and he has no worries in the world, so he doesn't need to stay in shape to fight. They're saying that he, he's got it on easy street. Israel, in fact, was known not for, for being rich or mighty warriors, but for agriculture people, for being farmers. And so the offering that Ehud was likely bringing wasn't just money. He was probably bringing the king more food. Could you imagine anything more humiliating? You're going to the leader of your enemies, and you're literally taking food from your people who at this point might even be starving. They're suffering to where they're calling out from God, and you're bringing this obese king even more food. See, the people were hoping that if they sent Ehud, the king would be on good terms with them because they knew Ehud was never a risk. Ehud, on the other hand, thought, man, what could I do? And so Ehud straps this knife to his side. He takes it. He's hiding it. And the story builds up this climax. You think something's going to happen. You think he's going to be used by God. He walks in, and it says that he just gives the offering and leaves. He has his shot. He's thinking, I'm going to do this. I'm going to slay this guy. I'm going I'm to take matters into my own hands. And he gets scared and just leaves. And as Ehud is leaving, it says that he goes and he crosses this river where these idols are. And these idols aren't simply just images of their God. Yes, that's true. That's what they are. But they're also barriers and markers showing the boundaries. So he's crossing literally from enemy territory into his home, into his home territory. And these gods specifically that they would have mounted here are the gods that they're thinking for being allowed to conquer Israel. So he's walking back with all of his people, you know, cowering like, oh, man. I didn't do it when I had the chance. I got scared. You know, he probably was one of those guys that talked a big game. And then when it came time, he, he dipped out. He was a coward. And he gets in front of these, these idols in this gate. And he sees these are the people that, you know, these, these gods, these false gods are the ones that they're giving glory to for over, overtaking his people. And it says that he stops. Now, him and his people were more than likely being led to this at this point by enemy soldiers because you don't, I don't know what you guys know about medieval stuff. I don't know much, but I do know this, that you're not often allowed to just walk over to the enemy territory lollygagging around. There's no loitering in the enemy territory. And so they're being walked out saying, okay, to your side. And it says everyone else left. And he says, hey, I need to go back. And he stays. And so he sends away all the other people, all the other Israelites. And he's like, hey, can you take me back to your king? And they begin to take him back. And it says that when he gets before the king, the king is really intrigued. Why would this man want to come back? And a couple of things probably go through his mind, but he allows the guy in, and, and here is Ehud thinking, yes, finally, I'm going to get this other chance. I'm so tired of, of being in servitude. I'm so tired of the situation. I'm going to do something about it. So he gets a second chance to go before the king, and things get a little bit better for him. One, he's pretty smart, so he goes up to the king, and he's like, hey, king, And if he's anything like us, what you think is, I love secrets. I love inside jokes. I like to be in the know. You know what I mean? I like to know things other people don't. So he's, he sends his servants away. He's like, be quiet. Get out of the room. So it's just him and, him and Ehud in this room because he's not, why would he be afraid of a guy that can't even pick up a sword? He 
He thinks this guy can't do anything wrong with me. So the Bible takes even more time and tells us that he's not even in the king's throne. The king has actually taken Ehud and they've left the throne. And now they're in his private cool chambers, his relaxation spa. And so the king's probably laying down on a couch, just chilling, saying, hey, it's just me and you. Why don't you tell me the secret message? And Ehud even comes up closer to him and he says, hey, good news. This isn't just a secret message, but this is a secret message from God. And the king's really intrigued. He's like, this man came from one of our most religious holy places. See, back then, everyone was religious, and kings made their moves based off what the gods would tell them to do. And so hearing that, you know, either Ehud's god or one of his own gods is speaking to him, the king is really intrigued to hear this because he's like thinking, one of three things is going to happen. Either this man's getting tired of being mocked by his own people, and he's thinking that if he comes and hangs out with me, that I'll treat him better. He's thinking maybe there's a rebellion going on, and he's seen how mighty we are, and so he's going to sell out his people for his own safety. Or he's thinking maybe when he was crossing this secret religious spot, the gods talked to him, and now he has a message from the gods from me. Either way, the king's like, yeah, this is good. So it says that the king got up and leaned forward, and that his gut is literally hanging over because he's getting right up to Ehud, and Ehud's whispering in his ear, and he's like, go ahead, tell me the secret. And it's only at that moment that Ehud finds the courage to grab his dagger and jam it into the king's stomach. You guys with me? This is a crazy story. He jams it into the king's stomach, and it says that the king is not only obese, but he's so obese that the dagger gets swallowed up in his rolls. Pillsbury Doughboy style. There it goes. And it says that at this point that the king's bowels begin to empty. So this is, a, this is going to become a pretty smelly situation. And so Ehud, being the man that he is, is thinking, I need to figure out how to get out of here. So it says he immediately goes and locks the door, and he sees the porta potty as his way out. Best slip and slide ever. Let's do this. Come on. So he goes, and it says that he just, he locks the door, sees that the guy's dead, and jumps down the toilet and just takes off running. At this point, the king's servants are coming back. And the king's servants are standing outside the door, you know, waiting for the king to be done with his little secret talk. And they begin to think, man, it's been a long time, but they begin to smell the smell. Like, well, the king does have a bathroom in there, so, you know, I don't want to walk in on the king. He's probably not going to like that, so I don't want to suffer his wrath, so let's just stand here. And it says that such a long time has passed that they're like, this is embarrassing for him. Like, we probably should help him out. So they find the key and unlock the door, and they walk in, and they see their king laid dead on the floor. At this point, they have no idea what's happened. Like I said, the dagger's been swallowed up. All they know is all his entrails, all his extremities are gone, and that, no, and that the guy they brought in with the king is gone too. And it says that they are scared. Now, here's the thing that we don't understand, is we think in modern context, he's their king. He's their boss. Boss is dead. Whoop, whoop. Take, I'm going to take his spot. Promotion time. Here we go. Tell the kids Christmas is on me. For them, they've probably served this king their entire life. And so when this king dies, they're standing here thinking, everything I've known, the person I've built my whole identity around, the person that I've built my whole life around, the person that is my foundation of comfort and living is gone. For them, it's like the whole, the whole world has just been knocked from underneath them. And they get scared, and it says that they immediately tell the soldiers, and they all start running. They're trying to get out of there as fast as possible. And while this is happening, while they're waiting and while they're setting this up, Ehud goes on top. He crosses over those idols. He goes back into Israel. And it says he finds the highest hill possible. And he sounds a trumpet calling all the soldiers. And you're thinking, cool, Ehud's finally getting brave. But here's the thing about this trumpet that they don't make clear in Scripture. Is this trumpet is not only saying, come fight with me to finish these people. He's saying, good news, I'm your new leader. 
See, his motivation, again, isn't to make much of God. His motivation isn't to help the people. He's thinking, I just assassinated the king, and they, they need somebody in charge. Why not me? And so he blows his trumpet. All the people walk out, and they're like, king's dead. And they see all these servants and soldiers running. And so they, he just forms a mob, and they go off to kill the rest of the people. And it says that they, they ran, and they got him and met them at this river point. That was basically like if they would have crossed this river, they would have been safe. But they found him there, and they slew them all. And here's what's interesting about these soldiers, is these soldiers, when they were conquering Israel, were the best of the best, the toughest of the toughest. But by the time that this story takes place, they, along with their king, have been living off all the offerings of Israel. Israel hasn't rebelled in 18 years. They've been taking it easy. They've gotten a little lax. They're not hitting the gym anymore. And it says that they were a little overweight. And they were a little out of shape. And so, you know, running the mile isn't as easy for them. And so they're tired. And by the time that the army catches up, they just wipe them out before they can make it. And it's embarrassing. It is embarrassing. And here's the thing about the story. Here's the thing about this story. Is that it's so easy for us to think, wow, man, that's, that's cool. How God used Ehud. Ehud was doing all these cool things. Ehud was an evil person with his own motivations. He didn't care about the other people. He didn't care about God. He cared about himself, but God was able to use them in that, to use them anyways in that situation. And here's the thing. No one else had the goal to do anything because this king was scared. This king had conquered the people. He had been hard on them. They had been suffering for 18 years. A lot of them at this point probably had only known being under him their entire life. And Ehud looks at this guy and his army, and by the end of the story, he makes them a joke. See, this king wasn't a joke. These hardships weren't a joke. But when you begin to look at the story by how it ends and the way that God was able to work in the midst of this, the king became a joke. And so often in our life, we see these big, scary things that we think are unbeatable, that have been holding us back for forever, that are these serious things that we could never conquer. But if we begin to look at them the way that God does, if we begin to have a biblical view, they're nothing but a joke. They're nothing but a joke. I'd love to tell you that's the end of the story and that it ends on this happy note, but it doesn't. It continues. And the cycle that I talked about in Judges continue. People have good lives for 80 years. As soon as Ehud's gone, guess what? They begin to forget about God. They begin to sin. They get conquered. And the process starts all over again. Have any of you ever had a friend or a family member that every time they call, you try to dodge their calls because you know it's just going to be asking for something else? <sighs> what do they need now? <sighs> what do they want now? It's like a series of problems and you're like, dude, I love you, but I, I just don't have the time or patience for this anymore. Anybody ever been like that? Do you really think that God doesn't get like that? Like we come up to him day after day dealing with the same thing. I remember for me in high school, it was like, God, I really want to be married. And he's like, yeah, I bet, but you're a jerk. But God, I really want to be married. And he's like, dude, just stop. Like annoying. And, we be, and it's silly, but we do it all the time. We come up to God and we live these patterns of sin and brokenness. And eventually he's just like, I'm tired of dealing with this. I'm going to let you face the consequence of your actions and maybe then you'll humble yourself. I think there's this clip that uh, from, how many of you guys have seen the awesome movie Incredibles? I think there's this clip that will really help put it in perspective. Fingers crossed. How many yes. times you say the world 
That's silly. It's silly. But how often does our life look that exact same way? We come to God with the same brokenness and sin, and we come to him making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And God's like, dude, I'm sick and tired of cleaning up after this. Like, what is it going to take to make a change? See, and I alluded to this, but this story doesn't have the happiest of endings because in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. Ehud made himself leader of this place, leader of Israel for this time. And it says that while he was their leader, they followed God. But the moment that he passed away, the moment he wasn't present in their life, they rebelled against him. I don't know about you guys, but I've, I've been in that place in my life where I'm only doing good when I have the right person doing good around me. I'm only doing good if I can follow this person who's doing good. And so many of us put people on pedestals that as long as I just follow them, things are good. As long as I don't have to make my decisions, as long as I can follow them, things are good. The problem is that for Israel, even when they had righteous kings, at best, that king would die at some point. Things would start all over again. And we learn something from this, that we are, in, are people in need of a king. We are people in need of a king. See, the most astonishing thing about this story isn't the fact that these people sin over and over and again. It isn't the fact that this, this guy with no right arm can assassinate a king and take control. None of that's what's crucial. What's crucial, the most important part of this story, is that God again and again and again extends mercy to people. That through all the book of Judges, through all the history of Israel, through all the history of humankind, through all the history of the church, that we make mistake after mistake, we rebel after rebel, and God still shows his mercy. Can I tell you, if God was fully just, if that's all he was, he would let us face the consequences of our sin and we'd be obliterated. But God extends his mercy. Extends his mercy. But in the midst of that, Israel begins to realize, and we begin to realize, these godly people that we follow aren't a permanent fix. They're not a permanent solution. In fact, in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, it says, In those days, Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Sound familiar to today? See, these people thought, I'm the smartest person here. I'm my own king. I can do whatever I want. And where did it always lead? destruction, and folly. But I've got good news for you guys, is we're not stuck in the situation because we have a king that is eternal. Amen? We follow the king of kings and the lord of lords. Our situation, no matter how hopeless, is not the end of the story. We get to give up some assassin who who hides and snivels and, st and fights with daggers to a king who says that the very words he speak out of his mouth comes a sword that comes with a strong right arm that doesn't look at us cowering saying, I don't know what to do. I better come up with some strategy. He comes boldly as the Messiah and says, it is finished. It is done. He comes and puts on the crown because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And here's the best part about it is he's not just king for right now. He's not going to give us good times for 80 years and then die. He is the King and Lord of Lords forever. In fact, Revelation chapter 1 verse 17 says, When I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Come on. Is that exciting? You guys know what I'm talking about? Lord of the Rings has nothing on King Jesus. The, the greatest kings we've ever seen in this world have nothing on Jesus. The greatest presidents we've ever had have nothing on Jesus. The tyrants of this world who've made their empires by blood have nothing on Jesus. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So that leaves us with one question. When you're in your dark situation, when things seem hopeless, when you've been in bondage, where do you find your hope? See, do you place it like the Israelites did firstly in good standing with the world? Do you try to compromise and be just like everybody else? Because can I tell you, if you're liked by everybody, then you've never been honest a day in your life. Do you find your hope in right standing with the world and having everybody like you? Or maybe your right standing is in some leader or politician who offers you momentary and easy fixes. But if you want to break the cycle truly, if you want to live the life of freedom and hope, you've got to follow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen? Amen. Amen. So my question for you this morning before we pray is, where do you put your hope? Is it in this world? Is it in some person? Or is it in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Pastor Melissa is coming up as I pray. God, right now, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for this people. God, I thank you for this question. That as we see broken people, as we see broken leaders, as we see hard situations, it is nothing but a foreshadowing, a billboard, a sign that points us to something greater, and that is you. God, I thank you that the Israelites were limited in their understanding, but we understand fully that you are the king that we awaited for. You are the king that has promised that we and ourselves are broken, we're sinful, at best we're anti-heroes with wrong motivations, but God, you are the true hero. That God, you come with a pure heart. God, you come with courage. You come with the spirit. You come with the anointing. Because God, you are the king. God, we love you. God, help us look to you. Help us find our hope in only you. In the name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Ty. Well, it is connection card time, everybody. So it is on your links, or there are paper versions in the back of the seat. Um, Take these connection cards. Not only do we want to know you're here, but we want to know how to pray with you. We, we want to walk beside you. We want to hear your praises. Um, I rejoice so much seeing your praises. And also if we can answer the question, how can I follow my king better, more effectively, with a better, um, with a better heart? So we are just going to take a moment and do these connection cards together. Right, I came up just to play with these cool swords and stuff, to be honest with you. Well, um, 
We are going to dismiss this thing, but as we do, as, as you heard last week, this Sunday is Pastor Ty and Rachel's final Sunday with us, and we want to just uh, give them all kinds of love and sh- share with them how much they mean to us. So uh, following the service here as we dismiss, there are some cookies and things out here. We would love for you to go and, and just greet and, and tell them how much you love them. Uh, Ty has told me that his love language is extended hugs, that if you just hug him to the point it feels a little bit uncomfortable and then count to 10... And then about five seconds after that, that's when he wants the hug to end. So just just a hug for long periods of time. Yeah, you can hug him from behind. Whichever, whichever you prefer, just long hugs for Pastor Ty would mean so much to him. So New Life Church, thank you so much. Have a blessed Sunday. We will see you back here Wednesday night for Midweek Equip. Make sure you're here. We can't wait to see you. God bless.